Welcome to the Seven Figure Club podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Longmore. I'm an eight-figure CEO, investor, board advisor, and I am on a mission to create as many millionaires as I can in this lifetime. I'm also on a mission to debunk the myth that your first million needs to be hard. On this podcast, you'll hear from me and the amazing guests we invite on to share the infinite ways that you can create your seven-figure company on your terms. So tune in now and find out why savvy CEOs just like you binge our show each week and share it as a high-value resource with their communities. Now let's dive into today's seven-figure micro masterclass. Welcome back, everyone. I am excited to have you back here on the show. We have the amazing David Barnett of davidcbarnett.com. So if you are not aware of David, you are going to want to listen up because David and I just recently, uh, well, I recently discovered David. I shouldn't say David, you discovered me because you didn't know who the hell I was. <laughs> I recently found you uh, because right now I'm looking at a few different businesses to purchase. And um, and it's a very specialty kind of thing, right? And it's it's one of the many ways that we can accelerate things in business. It's one of the ways that we can build um, real value in our companies and, and various things like that. And sometimes we might also want to sell a business. David can help with that as well, right? And so there's a lot of variables to take into account, but I wanted to invite David onto the show today because he's a tremendous resource. I highly, highly recommend that you follow up with him. We're going to chat about how to do that later. But for now, if you want to be doing some stealthy research on David while we're going through the show, the best place to go is David C, as in the letter C, Barnett with two T's.com. And uh, you'll be able to learn all about the ways that he can support you. So if you're not in front of a computer and able to do that right now, David loves to say that it took him 10 years to unlearn what he was taught in business school. And David, I believe that because university prepares you for theory and doesn't always prepare you for the real world. Uh, it trained him to be a middle manager in big enterprises, uh, but he wasn't really prepared for how that translated into small business. So after a career in advertising sales, David started several businesses, including a commercial debt brokerage house. I can only imagine how interesting that was, David, uh, helping to finance small and medium-sized businesses led to the field of business brokerage. And over the last several years, David sold dozens of businesses for others while also managing his own portfolio of income properties and starting his career as a local private investor. So he consults regularly with professionals and banks and businesses like us and uh, can evaluate assets and businesses and valuation and so on. He's also working with entrepreneurs like us and would-be entrepreneurs who are buying, selling, or trying to improve their businesses to really optimize things. So David, welcome. I, uh, thanks for inviting me on. I was so excited. You know, doing podcasts is one of my favorite things. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were chatting a little bit before the show when we stay in our lane and we only talk about what we know about, like we could talk forever about this. We don't even need like some sort of scripted outline or whatever. Right. And yeah. I know, you know, your stuff. Uh, I've been diving into the materials that you have in the, in the course that I just stepped into. And, uh, but I mean, it, it's obvious. It's, it's very obvious that you know your stuff. And uh, what I appreciate about you among many other things is that, well, aside from real world guidance and like really making it applicable and giving real world examples to help our brains sort of go, okay, that's in theory, but how does this apply in real life? You're just a grounded, personable, like welcoming guy. You, This is a very niche thing to have knowledge about that most people don't, but I don't at all feel like you're talking over my head or you view yourself as like, you know, like you're talking down to the peons or whatever. And you're just real, you know. Well, well, thank you. You know, it, it, it's interesting because um, I was listening to someone else talk. I don't can't remember if it was a podcast or an audio book, and they were talking about how there are some fields out there that will use certain jargon and language, and and the jargon and language serves no purpose other than to make people outside the field feel like they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's it's almost like the jargon and language is meant to be a barrier to mm -hmm. to kind to kind of like uh, you know, be a moat to protect, uh, their business. And for the, as long as I can remember, 
people have often commented that I, I haven't skilled at being able to explain things and just mm-hmm. a, a good natural teacher. And so, you know, you lean into your strengths, right? And mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because my whole path, even as a teenager and growing into my 20s, I always ended up in a place where part of what I was doing was explaining things. Even, even uh, here's, a, here's a flashback. Even at one point, I was a science center, uh, like presentation interpreter that would get, you know, little girls with the long, fine hair to come <laughs> up with their hand right. yeah. on the Van de Graaff generator to get their hair to all like poof out like a big, uh, you know, dandelion about to go to seed and uh, explaining how static electricity worked and all that kind of stuff. So, and, and then through my sales career, I've often been in positions like, you know, I spent several years back working in the yellow pages back in the 1990s, which was amazing because it got me this exposure to all these small businesses of varying types. And I got to figure out how they made money and what kind of customers they wanted. But I would send, I would end up sitting there talking with them about the difference between directive and creative advertising and how, how a business uses both of these and how they fit together. And, you know, how yellow pages worked differently than a radio ad, but what can really make the radio ad work well is the connection with the yellow pages. You know, back in those days, we didn't have smartphones. And so, you know, I would instruct clients like a flower shop, for example, I would say, if you really want to make sales for Mother's Day, you put a distinctive ad in the yellow pages, and then you go on the radio and say, we're doing this special, look for the ad with whatever, when you open the yellow pages. And, and it, to better make that connection because no one was writing down a phone number when they're driving in their car, right? And so and just like showing people how these things connect together. And I guess the analogy today would be if you're going to do a paid ad on Facebook or something that you want to lead them to someplace that's going to be able to answer their questions and and create, you know, uh, trust and demonstrate quality and, and all that kind of stuff. Because if you don't have that second part, you know, that then you're going to pay for leads that aren't going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So this has always been uh, something that, that uh, I've been pretty good at. And when it led me into this whole world, uh, you know, the debt brokerage brought me in front of business owners who were looking for money. And then I started to meet people looking for money to buy existing businesses. And when that financial crisis happened in 08, 09, my, my debt brokerage pretty much wound to a halt because so many of the companies that I was sourcing capital from went under in that crisis. And then I realized, hey, you know, these people that have been trying to buy businesses as a going concern, they're underserved. And that's what led me into business brokerage. And then I spent a few years doing that. And I realized that that was not really an ideal business. You know, for those watching on video, you know, I've got a lot of, a lot of gray hair on the side of my head and, <laughs> and, and I, and I say that all that gray hair came from my years as a business broker because <laughs> it's, it, it's modeled on real estate. So yeah, you find a business owner that wants to sell, you list their business for sale. It can take Jennifer years to meet the right buyer. Mm-hmm. And then it can take a year to work out the deal. And then months and months to get all the details worked out for closing. And so I would literally have files on my desk for a long time. There was a a fried chicken franchise that I sold for someone. It was one of the first listings I took in December of 2008. It was the last business I sold in December, 2011. (gasps) And so I had that file on my desk for three years. I sold the business three times. The first two times at the 11th hour, the deals fell apart. And so all of the work and the effort that I had done ended up, you know, I, I wasn't compensated, right? And so those were some of the things that kind of made me frustrated with that with that career. And I had two young kids at home at the time. So I ended up leaving. I said, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And it's funny how, you know, the, the marketplace tries to talk to you, right? I kept I kept meeting business owners who were looking for help throughout that time. And I would give them guidance. I would give them advice. I would talk with them. Then I'd find out later they'd done deals on their own. And of course, I didn't earn any money from that. But it was after I left the field, I I actually started working for a bank. So I became a banker. And while I was working for the bank, people would call me up because they'd been given my phone number. And they would say, I'm trying to do this deal. I heard that you can help me with it. And I I would say to these people initially, like, no, I don't do that anymore. I'm not a business broker anymore. And Eventually, there was an opportunity where I said, you know, I I can help you and I know you need help. Mm 
but I have a full-time job. Maybe we can meet on the weekend. I'll have to charge you like a consultant. And the person didn't hesitate. They said, yeah, yeah, I want to pay you. I want some help with this deal. And that planted the seed of what became a little side hustle for me of just helping people with these deals. And then the bank wanted to reorganize and there were packages coming out. And I said, wow, you know, if I could get a severance, I could use that as a runway for me to build a business in this consulting stuff. And that's what I did. So I basically got back into the world of helping people buy and sell businesses, but this time with a very different business model. Instead of being a broker, I'm now a consultant and I've written some books and I've done some online courses, one of which you signed up for. But then at the heart of it all is the one-on-one consulting work. And I also have a group program too for buyers, but it's that helping people look at files, you know, I've, I've just, I've looked at so many files, so many sets of financial statements, so many sets of tax returns over the years that I can cut through one of these files relatively quickly. And I know the stuff to look for. And so really what people are doing when they engage with me is they're just taking advantage of that experience and getting a shortcut in mm-hmm. figuring out if there's an opportunity or if there isn't, or if there is, but just not at this price, or if there is, but it, here are the conditions that need to be surrounding the deal. And, and that's the part that catches a lot of people by surprise because for most people, when they think about a big thing that they're buying, car, house, something like that, you think about it being big, you think about being expensive, you think about a big check, a high price, you know, maybe you think about borrowing money to get that, you know, people borrow for cor- for cars, they borrow for houses. When it comes to businesses, um, the borrowing is more difficult because it's a harder type of asset for a lender to put their hands around, you know, bank can repossess a car, they can take a house if you don't make the payments, but the business, part of its value is intangible. It's the goodwill in the marketplace. It's the fact that you're known by, by people and all this kind of stuff. And, and the banker can't take that from someone and, and then put it up for sale, right? And so what surprises a lot of people is that when these deals are made, it's not necessarily the price that is one of the most important factors. It's often the terms of sale. And so we can get into all kinds of interesting things about you know, here's the price, but part of it's paid on closing. The other part is paid over time, for example, or subject to being written down if certain things don't bear out in the future of the business. You know, if I buy a business from you and it's doing a certain thing, as a buyer of that business, I might expect that it's going to carry on doing that thing for me. Well, what if it doesn't, right? Now it's my business. How can I adjust that. Well, the way you adjust it is by having part of the money due later so that you can make adjustments against that. And so from the seller's point of view, that then raises a whole other series of questions. You know, if I'm not going to be paid entirely on closing, how do I make sure that this is the right buyer? And and that type of thing actually plays into the hands of the buyer because it means that the seller is actually vetting you and making sure that they believe you're a good qualified operator. And, you know, sometimes we can think that we're going to be good for something, but the seller is the one that knows the business intimately. And they're often a much better judge of what kind of person might be able to step into their shoes than we can be sometimes. Mm -hmm. So much to unpack there. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, I want to circle back to what you said about the mentorship. Like all of us listening today, if you're listening to the show, I know you already get the concept of mentorship really is meant to get you there quicker and to sh- save you the shortcuts. And in this case, like I've invested with real estate mentors in the past and people to help me with the stock market because it's a language I don't understand. And the amount of years I would have to dedicate to understanding that language, why would I do that? right? Like mm-hmm. back in the day when I used to be in tax liens, right? I'm going to be at an old boys club in Texas and being standing at an auction with, with a bunch of guys in cowboy hats that are purposely going to play the games that any of these auction houses do, whether it's antiques or whatever, right? And what do I know, right? Or I could find someone that's an agent that lives and breathes this and yeah, pay them a commission. So I'd rather have 80% of let's say a million dollars worth of assets versus 0% of a million dollars worth of assets. Right. And, um, and the same is true for this though. Like I honestly say, I'll honestly say to all of you listening, 
if if buying a business or even selling a business is on in the cards for you, but let's just stay with buying a business for now. I, I don't know that you can afford to do that journey on your own without learning some pretty expensive business lessons, honestly, because even David in consulting with you, like I already had a sense of some of these, like, hmm, I have a feeling that I'm not being told the whole story, or I'm having a feeling that maybe some personal expenses are running through the business, or maybe there's some, it, there's a reason why certain documents aren't being shared. And why is that? I can kind of look at things that are, you know, perk my spidey senses, but then when you and I consulted for half an hour, you were like, doo, 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 and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even consider that. But I could have easily overpaid, you know, multiple six figures more than a business was worth simply because I didn't know how to ask certain things. Right. And I would, of course, much rather keep that money in my pocket and maybe go to work for me in the stock market or whatever I'm going to do. Right. So I'm so grateful, yeah. enough, by the way. Well, and, and, and people, when they get into this, oftentimes their perceptions obviously are colored by their own experiences, right? And, and one of the things that I've seen quite often is people who have had any kind of track record in real estate investing will go into the business space and not have a clear understanding of how the risk dynamics have changed in magnitudes. So, you know, I'll give you a quick example. You know, you might look at a rental property, an apartment building, and and I mean, I'm not on top of this every day, but what, you know, they're, they might be evaluated with a cap rate of six or 7% or whatever, depending on the market. Well, some people will go into the world of business from that real estate investing world. And they'll look at a business for sale and they'll go, wow, if I, if I look at this, like a building, the cap rate is like 19%. That looks like a good deal, right? It looks like really attractive, but let's think about those two things. The apartment building is a tangible structure. We can have it examined. Um, we can have an inspector come in and find any fault with it. With proper maintenance, the building should last for 100 years or more, right? If it's built like a European building, it could last for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? And so we've got this really long-lived asset that's tangible. We can examine it. We can know relatively what its condition is like. We can protect the asset. It's very easy to buy insurance, right? Against a lot of different things that could happen. That'll make us whole if things go wrong. Let's look at a business now. A business is where three things come together. People, capital, and they come together in a place, whether it's a website or a physical store or a warehouse or a factory, right? And the owner of the business is kind of like a conductor of an orchestra because what the conductor is doing is creating this system of how these people interact with each other and how they use the capital. The capital is the inventory, the machinery, the equipment, the cash in the drawer, in the till. And so we're directing people about how we serve customers, how we execute on our product or service and all this kind of thing. And we have to pull it off in such a specific way that at the end of the day, we have more money than we started with. So we have a positive cash flow. Now, so many different things could happen to upset that finely tuned orchestra, right? And I, I've seen businesses fail because employees develop substance abuse problems and start a ceiling, right? Mm. This is something you can imagine. I've seen, I've seen businesses fail because the owners weren't watching carefully enough of what was going on in the market. I've seen businesses fail because costs went up and they didn't have the ability to pass on the increased costs. We saw a lot of that in this recent period of time with COVID and all the supply chain mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. When most entrepreneurs look at their business, they see it as a vehicle uh, that they very much hold the reins to. They, they say, I have a lot of control over this. I get to dictate what's going on in my business. But I've seen restaurants fail when a city decided to replace water and sewer lines on the front of their business and took three months longer than they were supposed to, right? That's got nothing to do with customers, the recipes, how polite the staff are, none of it. it. It's completely outside your control. And you can't buy insurance against a lot of this stuff, mm -hmm. right? And so the thing that I try to highlight with people is that business being a system, and I'll, sometimes people will, will say, you know, this is what my business looks like or whatever. But, and, and here's what I want to get across is that you cannot actually show me a picture of a business. So you, you can take a picture of a bunch of plumbing vans and the plumbers standing in front of them and say, this is my business. And I'll say, no, those are vans and people. 
right? Mm -hmm. You can take a picture of the storefront and I'll say, that's no, that's a picture of a building, right? Mm -hmm. You can't take a picture of a, of a business because it's an ethereal kind of thing. It's, it's this orchestration of activity, this song and this dance. And it is so incredibly fragile that in order for you to actually spend money to buy it from someone else, a few things have to happen. Number one, the cash flow has to be there and has to be good enough that you want that someone wants to buy it. That cash flow is going to determine the price you're willing to pay. But you also have to be able to answer the question: will the cash flow survive the change of stewardship? And with all of these risks with such a fragile thing, just how quickly do I want to get my money back? And so the answer to that is that a lot of small businesses trade hands for like two times cash flow. If you want to convert that into cap rate methodology for people that are familiar with real estate, we're talking about like a 50% cap rate. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I say that sometimes people that come into this from a different world, they'll bring a different frame of reference and they'll end up doing a mistake that they aren't even aware of, usually until after they've done the deal, unfortunately. Hmm. I love that you brought all that up. First of all, I, as a side note, I don't have a storefront, but whenever towns and cities decide to do a massive renovation during, like during peak season, when there's mm. massive um, foot traffic in, you know, I don't know, like you and I are both Canadians. So like, let's say Niagara Falls, right? Like they're going to be heavily dependent upon foot traffic from like let's say may until october or something like that yeah. and then that's usually when they decide to do massive construction they're not in a hurry to do it and as a as a pedestrian i know for me i'm not going to be walking into a store when i'm having to like bob and weave construction material or i think i might fall through a floorboard or something like that right or, and, or when you have to walk across one of those big steel plates they'll put over like an open pit uh, yes. when they're working on the sewer and you're like I don't know if I want to walk across this little makeshift makeshift bridge you know totally and a lot of these I mean maybe not so much in Niagara Falls but if you think of smaller towns maybe there's an antique store store that only gets maybe you know two people coming in on a Monday they cannot afford to lose two people on a Monday or five people on a Thursday or whatever it, it breaks my heart when I see that and that's storefront businesses right but like you said too are we, are we factoring in all the variables? I know for me, when I look at businesses, I'm like, okay, like you said, it, how is that cash flow going to fare when there's a change of ownership, right? It, are, are the sales really dependent upon the person that owns it because it's relationship capital essentially, or are they buying something that they're going to buy anyways, regardless of who owns the business? And, you know, like we talked about one of the companies I'm looking at, like, what's the churn rate? That's a good question, right? If I have to keep replacing customers every eight weeks, then I miss, then why wouldn't I just grow my own company myself or like do it on my own without maybe spending multiple six figures on a company? What yeah. am I getting then? You know, um, and of course, looking at all the other creative ways that people account, like I think where real estate might apply, and you can certainly correct me if I'm off base, how I view it is. If I'm going to go into one of these deals, not unlike real estate, the seller of a home is never usually, or I shouldn't, I shouldn't say never, rarely happy with the price they got. They usually feel like they would have wanted more, except in markets, of course, where it's like a frenzy and they're getting overpaid. But for the most part, a seller is going to say, I wish that, you know, I got 10,000 more or whatever. And a buyer is usually going to feel like they paid more than they would have liked, right? So a good deal in real estate is typically when neither party is 100% happy with what they received or what they paid, right? I've got to think the same is true with a business purchase as well. Well, you know, it's it's a great thing that you brought up because I I like, I love to talk about the difference between transactional business, which can sometimes be confrontational, which is what you described. So the seller wanted more buyer wanted to pay less, neither entirely happy. But once the keys are handed over, we don't need the seller of the house for anything, usually, right? The same mm -hmm. thing can be drawn, you can draw the same conclusion about a used bicycle advertised online. You can drive across town, you can look at the bicycle, they want 100 bucks for it, you can offer them 80, they can lie to you and say someone else is coming in 20 minutes if you don't take it, 
right? They can do all, you know, both parties can engage <laughs> in all kinds of underhanded negotiations that make the other person feel terrible about the interaction. But once the money in the bicycle changes hands, it's done and it doesn't matter. It's entirely different with the sale of a business. Almost in every case, the buyer needs the seller to stay on through a transition period and teach the buyer how to run the business, right? Mm. So as a buyer, you want the seller to be happy with you and you want the seller to want to help you. At the same time, the seller, as I mentioned before, they often haven't been paid in full when you take over. So the seller needs to want to be supportive and helpful because they have an actual financial interest in your success, right? Mm. And so both parties need to be on each other's team. Uh, I will. I like to draw the analogy that what we're doing is we're actually creating for a period of time, which could be months or years, even depending on the business, almost creating a partnership where both the buyer and the seller both have the same aligned interests, which is the success of the buyer. And this is critical as to be a successful business buyer is you want all of the wisdom, advice, mentorship, support of the expert in the business, which is the seller, to be there at your disposal and be willing and happy to want to help you. Um, this is one of the things that I point out and I say, you never, ever, ever want to pay cash for a business because then you can make it like the house transaction. And I can tell you a crazy story. Um, this was for like a small town, uh, little market, and it had like a, like a liquor concession in there too. And the sellers owned two businesses. They owned the market and they owned the bakery across the street and they sold the market. And the new owner came in and it was a cash deal. The new owner came in and they started making changes. They updated the look. They made it, you know, fresh and clean. They started to have like a sandwich counter, a little bit of deli service. There was a seating area. They, they started to, to make all of these positive changes and the sellers looked at them from across the street and were almost maybe possessed by jealousy, perhaps like, Hmm, we could have done that. Like, like, look at them making us look bad because, you know, and, and, and so what started to happen is because they were still very much in the public domain at the bakery across the street, they started rumors about the new owner of the market. And they started to say things about the way that they were doing things and all, and just really bizarre emotional kind of stuff. Now, if they were relying on that buyer to pay money going for many years through the, you know, the structuring of the deal with a seller note, they'd have a financial reason to stay in line mm -hmm. to at least not badmouth the buyer. And, and this is what I mean by you need the alignment of interests between mm -hmm. both parties. And there have been very many deals that I've helped people on where the other party just has not been acting in a, a, a mature manner when it comes to business or emotional maturity, for example. And they'll, they'll do these sort of like schoolyard negotiation tactics, or they'll, they'll, they'll start to play these games. And one of the things that I'll always ask my client is, now that you're getting to know them better, do you look forward to being tied up with them over the course of the next few years? Do you think that their promises about their behavior in the next few years after the transition are going to live up to the hype that they're saying this business has? And I've seen all kinds of shenanigans that you really can't prove. Uh, one business that I sold had to do with building materials. And it was kind of interesting because it was a very unique kind of product. And one of the great advantages of this business is that they would go and talk with architects or developers. They'd talk about the benefits of their product and it was kind of stylish and, and things like this. And what would happen is the architects or the developers would, would put this material in as part of the specifications. And then they would go out to tender for general contractors to build the building but all the general contractors were working from plans that said, you have to use this stuff. So, so these guys would get five different phone calls from five different general contractors all trying to win the work. But all those general contractors were looking for a quote from them for this material. So it didn't matter who won the job, they would win the sale of their product, right? 
And so the relationship with the architects, developers, et cetera, were key. So in this particular case, the buyer and the seller post-deal um, were going around and meeting architects, bringing a sample book, having conversations. The seller was introducing them to the buyer and talking about why he was a great buyer and going to be highly qualified to be able to help them and everything. And there was this one architecture firm and the seller said, we don't need to go there because I was literally there two months ago. And you might want to visit with them in a few years. Well, about a year and a half after the sale, the buyer went into that architecture firm and he encountered something he had never seen yet. And it was people that were openly hostile to him and his product because there had been some kind of history between the seller and that firm. Promises were made, you know, commitments weren't delivered upon, et cetera. And the seller didn't want the buyer to know that that particular relationship had been poisoned, right? And, and, and the, like no level of due diligence would be able to sh show you that that had happened between that architecture firm and that, and that business. So, so this is what I, what I like to point to when I talk about fragility. There's so many unknowns. There's so many things you can't even test for before you make the purchase. Lawyers will say, you know, do your due diligence. Accountants will say, check all the numbers. You can do all that and still be surprised two years after the transaction about something that was unforeseeable from your point of view. It's only after you got in there and really learned the business and got a chance to meet other people in the industry that you become aware of some of these things. This is why it's so important to structure the note in a proper way, to structure the deal in a proper way. But it's also why it's so important to make sure that you're picking, you know, the right character to do business with, mm. right? You, you want to make sure that you vibe with that person, that, that there's some commonalities. I will often say that a buyer's um, best position is to really meet the seller and, and both of you walk away with the impression that, hey, uh, I'm like them, but 20 years younger, Right. Like I can see that I'm on the same kind of path in, in life as the seller is. And that we have some consistencies or some commonalities in our experience or whatnot that was going to connect us on multiple levels. In, in my opinion, a successful business sale transaction results in the buyer and seller becoming friends. And I've got many instances where sellers years after a transaction will stop in on the business and chit chat with the, with the buyer and, you know, keep up with each other and talk about things and talk about changes in the industry. And that seller 10 years after will be on the golf course and hear potentially some business and, and call the buyer and say, I just had a conversation with this guy and they could use your services. Right. Because they, they genuinely like each other and want to see the other party succeed. And, and if, if, if that is lacking, you know, if there's, if, if there's, it's impersonal and cold and there's, there isn't that connection, then I think the buyer has to be even more careful. Mm. I love that you're sharing this because I, I hadn't even considered that in the business that I bought a year ago, we know each other very well. So it was kind of a given, right? Like we, you know, I know this person's heart and their character and so on. But I would have probably approached a lot of this as transactional. And you're right. Like, uh, especially when you're talking about the shady stuff that I, I'm guessing, is this kind of like a common clause, by the way, in a contract where you're like, you know, seller agrees not to sabotage the new, you know, the new buyer or like disparage or, you know, um, like whatever clauses you might put in there about like, keep your mouth shut and don't smack talk me in public kind of thing. <laughs> It depends on on how the deal is organized, where the deal is happening, like what jurisdiction, um, who's involved, and what level of you know paperwork people are applying to it. Obviously, the the bigger, more complex deals are going to have more in the way of involvement from other advisors, like lawyers and things. Mm -hmm. But it, it's typical, for example, when you make an offer on the business, that there's some kind of clause saying that the seller has to carry on business as usual, right? You know, you don't want to do anything that's going to arm the business potentially. But I'll, I'll give you an example of a deal that uh, that is not closing that one of my clients is working on. So they were negotiating for a business and the business has uh, recurring revenue with contracted clients. And um, the seller was very, you know, tough in his negotiating. 
And as the buyer, the buyer and seller eventually came to an agreement and the buyer started to do some due diligence, asking for bank statements and, you know, tax records and all this kind of stuff, uh, looking for timesheets for the employees, like reconciling the contracts to make sure that the labor matched up with the sales, all this kind of stuff. And throughout that process, the seller kept trying to renegotiate for more money, right? And and the buyer was like, well, you know, we have a deal and all this kind of stuff. And and I'm I'm coaching the buyer, trying to show him different ways that he can try to de-escalate the situation, how he can try to, you know, make it work out better, et cetera, and is successful at every move. So you know, the seller is sending these emails saying he thinks he needs more money. And I'm like, don't reply to the emails, call him on the phone. You know, when you call him on the phone, don't negotiate with him, just negotiate for lunch, go meet him in person, right? Talk with him in person. Say, you know, we had this deal. Can you tell me what is it that's going on that makes you think that you need more money? You know, and face to face, it's harder for people to be um, obtuse, you know, to be obstinate face-to-face. It's easy to do it in an email, right? Yeah. And so they would go have lunch, have a chat, and then the guy would be like, yeah, okay, you know what? If you can do this, I'll do this, right? And so every time the seller sort of made these moves to blow up the deal, the buyer was able to get it back on track. At the 11th hour, the seller says, I don't want to go forward with the deal. I'm going to sell it to my son instead. And by this point, the buyer has invested money with accountants mm-hmm. and lawyers to do due diligence. There's paperwork is being put together and they have this written agreement saying they're going to be doing the deal. Um, and, and the buyer is like, you know, we have a deal. Um, I understand that you might be under pressure maybe from your spouse or other people in your family to keep the business within the family. So how about this? And, and this was another key thing I coached him on. Like, is a lot of these decisions are emotionally driven. They're not, you're not dealing with MBAs on Wall Street who are making a purely, you know, money-driven decision about how many decimal points something is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's a lot of emotion in this. A lot of the times these businesses are like children to some of these sellers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, tell them you understand. Tell them that if you were in the same situation, you'd have the same kind of challenge and say, why don't you all meet and talk about it over the weekend and I'll follow up with you on Tuesday, right? So just acknowledging the seller's position, right? And, and, and letting him take the time, right? And it's like, how do you, how do you be angry with that? How, how can you react oh. negatively? So Tuesday comes around and you know what happened, Jennifer? This is when the seller admitted for the first time that he lost a major contract three months earlier and the sales for the year were going to be off by close to a million dollars and the business isn't worth anywhere close to what the buyer believes. But instead of actually being honest and transparent and straightforward with the buyer, he hid the fact and was probably subconsciously trying to derail the conversation and the negotiation so he never had to reveal that. Mm -hmm. And so that deal is dead. It's not going to happen. But I don't think it can ever recover. I don't mm-hmm. think the buyer would ever do business with that person again. Mm-hmm. And this, and this is, brings me back to what I was saying before about connecting with a person on a, on a human level. Um, because you have to be careful about who you do business with people. You know, if, if, if you're in the flower business and you're selling bouquets of flower, like flowers, any person with 20 bucks, you will, you can do business yeah. with them, right? Yeah. But when you're talking about entering into a business relationship, which is going to have big financial consequences over a long period of time, then you really have to take stock of who you're dealing with. And, yeah. you know, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's just, just a, a, a peek at some of the stuff, but it, it really is, gets back to the basic truth is that all business is done between people. Mm-hmm. Anything you buy and sell, there is some level of interaction with a person somewhere who's going to be the other side of that transaction. And if, if you don't like them or you don't want to do business with them, you won't. And a lot of the times that spidey sense or that gut feeling that you have is probably some kind of intuitive thing that you should be listening to. Mm-hmm. 
it's occurring to me as you're sharing this, and I know once people step into your world, they'll get way more. I mean, because there, there's so much, like even just the course that I invested in, there's hours and hours of training just to have like a satisfactory understanding, right, of what you're talking about. So we're not going to cover obviously all of that today. And not to mention people's circuitry would be blown open, right? We'd be cross-eyed going, <laughs> oh my God, it is a, a new language. But what's occurring to me and the similarities with the stock market are that you really have to know your risk threshold because I've got to mm. think that there are businesses you can buy that have a little less risk involved. I mean, there's always going to be risk, but if we look at our risk, like I weirdly and shockingly have a very high risk tolerance. I learned that from doing various assessments and just seeing how I am on the stock market and other deals. So I try to mitigate some of that, like, you know, you and I've talked about um, to, to look at what am I missing that my brain can't see right now. Right. But I still recognize that there's going to be a risk. And so, uh, I have to then be able to live with the cause and effect of my choice of getting into a deal and maybe not asking the right questions or getting into bed, so to speak with a, a seller that maybe is lacking in character or is willing to be like intentionally deceptive or things like that. Right. So there's just, like you said, some things you can't mitigate against, but, um, well, well, let's, let, you, you talk about risk and you mentioned the stock market. So the, I'd love to just in two minutes yeah. share, share one of the one of the key risk factors that is highlighted by the, the difference between these two markets. So the stock market is literally a place where people buy and sell little bits of ownership of a company, right? Mm -hmm. And it was created to solve the problem that small businesses have, which is liquidity. Mm -hmm. So the problem with being a business owner is that it is very difficult and it can take a long time. I mentioned earlier, you know, when I was a broker, sometimes taking years to sell a business. And so this is called liquidity risk. Once you buy the business, if you decide two weeks later, you don't like it, it can take you two years to sell it, right? Mm -hmm. The stock market doesn't suffer from that because as long as the market is open, you can put in your, your order to sell your shares and, and someone out there presumably wants to buy the price goes up and down as these demands ebb and flow, right? So one of the one of the ways that you can look at liquidity risk is you can say not all small businesses have the same degree of liquidity risk. There is a spectrum. So a business that requires, for example, the owner to hold a special license or certification or skill set, let's say an architecture firm, right? There are going to be far fewer people out there with the certification and background to be able to be the owner mm -hmm. than if you're looking at a convenience store, right? So a lot of people can operate a convenience store and are looking to buy one. So a convenience store is a far more liquid small business than an architecture firm would be. So, so it's, again, it's looking at these different things and, and, and figuring out Am I making an investment in a small business purely as an investment, right? Or am I making an investment in a small business, but I'm also buying a job at the same time? Mm -hmm. Some people will say that this often quoted comment, they'll say, you know, I want to buy a business, not a job. So what, what do they mean by that? Well, they mean that they want to be able perhaps to pay someone to manage the business and have some kind of earnings beyond that to represent a return on investment. The vast majority of small businesses are operated by their owners. And there are a lot of people that want to leave jobs they don't like. And they look at buying a business as the vehicle to do that. And they fully intend to step in and become the operator of the business that they buy. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of those people, buying the job and the business, making the investment in the business at the same time is really smart because if you are an expert in a certain industry and you have a lot of business background that is applicable and you have the skills to improve that business, this is the real game changer. So many businesses are owned by people who are like older and they, they're kind of tired of it and they're just going through the motions and not really doing all the things that maybe would help that business grow as quickly as it could. And you know they put it up for sale because they want to retire and they sell it to some younger you know person that has more, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, energy in their step and is more excited and wants to get out and do the things that they've been avoiding for years, you can really grow that thing. And that's really real opportunity is, is you buy a business, you know, at one level that has great earnings and you pay based on what the business is doing, but then you take that and you grow it. 
And if you can grow it for a few years and increase the size of the business, that's what's going to make it a great deal for you. To, to draw the comparison with real estate again, you know, if you buy a, an apartment building, right? Um, you can mismanage the apartment building. You can drive tenants away. The chances of having a completely empty building are very low, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you mismanage your apartment building and you say, you know what, this isn't for me, I'm not making much money, I quit. You can put it up for sale and probably recoup a vast majority of the money you put into it, right? Mm -hmm. You might even get all the money or if you bought and sold at the right time, you might even make money regardless of the fact that you mismanaged the building, right? But it's also very difficult for somebody to buy an apartment building and double the revenue. Mm -hmm. So because there's only so much we can do, we can renovate the apartments and get more money, but to double, I mean, that's hard, right? And we can't rent six unit apartments to 12 families, right? Like we can't grow the clientele without a significant expansion cost of adding to the building. But in, a, in the world of business, if you mismanage a business and it doesn't make any money, the value of the business really could go to zero. Like the entire thing could blow up and be gone. Mm -hmm. At the same time, on the other side, you can change how your business is operating. You can do different marketing. You can change the way the service is provided. You can do add-on services. And you could double the number of clients you serve, sometimes without increasing your overheads at all, right? And so one of the ways we can imagine this is we can say that uh, a, an operating business has operational leverage in it. It's, it's the same as the financial leverage that you get when you invest in real estate, but the stick is longer. And it means you can go further, you know, with those resources. But at the same time, in the world of real estate, there's kind of like you have guardrails, both to the bottom and the upside. And in business, they're not there. So, you know, you can do more with a business. You can have it grow faster, have the profits increase more. You can do worse with business. So this is why business ownership is so attractive to people who've had some kind of successful career where they've learned an industry. They've learned how to manage a business really well uh, for someone else, perhaps. They got paid to develop these skills. And now they're going to go buy a business and they're going to apply those own, their own skills for their own benefit now for the first time where not only are they going to take a paycheck, but they're going to participate in that upside of, you know, potentially growing the sales and growing the revenue and growing the, uh, the earnings. So much to factor in, isn't there? It's, I love that you pointed that out because um, yeah, I, I mean, if we're going to distill it to go across all investment possibilities, right. Regardless of how people are wanting to compound their money, there's going to be uh, pros and cons and everything, right? And so, uh, but regardless of the investment strategy, if, it were, if we're looking this, at this mm. as an investment strategy, it still has a lot of risks that we're, we're probably not even taking into account. I, yeah. I genuinely wish we could, I mean, even just one thing that you've talked about today, we could end up spending like three months unpacking it, right? With like all the nuances and, and stuff like that. So I would love to have you come and join us again, if you're open to that. I feel like there's more and more to, to chat about with that. But for now, I know everyone listening is like, how do I get David's eyes on these deals I want to do? How do I get, you know, get my feet wet? How do I decide if I'm even someone that has the I'll say fortitude, at least right now, to be someone that can enter into, you know, purchasing a business as an example. But also for some of you listening, you might be at a point in your life for all the different reasons where you actually want to sell a business. So whether you want to buy a business or explore buying a business, explore selling your business or anything in between, uh, David genuinely is your person. I wholeheartedly believe that. So David, can you let it, let everyone know how they can stay in touch with you? I know you have all kinds of free resources as well. So yeah. maybe we can let people know that. Sure. Uh, so davidcbarnett.com is my blog site. That's my main point of contact where people can learn about all the different things that I do. Uh, but I would encourage people to you know subscribe to the YouTube channel or follow the, the audio, which is on every audio service that there is out there for podcasts. Just look up David C. Barnett, um, small business, and you'll find me. Um, and I do have an email list too that people can subscribe to. And I send out tidbits every day, ideas, thoughts, lessons, stories, et cetera. 
and um, you know, immerse yourself in the world. There's, I think I've got 600 videos on YouTube now, and it's almost entirely driven from questions that people have submitted. So people just like you out in the audience who had a question about something and they get sent in, that's where I find the topics for my videos. So um, come on over and, and learn. And if you think you want to know more, then there's, there's other things you can do, online courses, books, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah. And some of your book titles, by the way, just make me chuckle. You, you're like hitting people between the eyes, basically, like I call it flicking people between the eyes. With that things. one right there, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Behind yeah. me? Yeah. 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 Can you I, just read it out loud? Because people might not be able to see that. If oh, yeah. Listening. Yeah. So, so one of the books that I wrote is called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. <laughs> I, I basically just sat down one day and just made a list of all of the most common things that I just have addressed with people over and over and over. And, and uh, it went beyond that. Um, I think there's like three or four bonus ones in there too. that I added after I'm like, Oh yeah, can't, can't forget that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I've met a lot of people, you know, who found that book on Amazon because they went for looking for something to teach them how to buy a business and, um, and yeah, it, it, people really do make a lot of the same mistakes over and over again. That's what I'm trying to warn people against. Mm, I love that. Well, David, thank you so, so much for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. And thanks to all of you for being here. We so appreciate you. We would love to hear what your takeaways are. We would love for you to share this episode with other people that you feel would benefit because I imagine, you know, a lot of people that will. So between now and our next episode, thank you for being here. We'll see you again next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to have a chance to have your name and business featured on the 7th Every Club podcast, just hop on over to where you listen to this podcast and leave a review. If you're selected, you'll have your name and business featured on our show. You will be helping to as many millionaires as possible and you never know what other ripple effects that will have until next time sending you oodles of prosperous vibes we'll see you on the next show